Welcome to the Conservation Queens podcast. We are five girls who love the earth and have a passion for living a more eco-friendly life. We are real-life zoo employees, and as always, nothing that we say reflects our organizations, and all thoughts and opinions are our own. Please keep in mind that we try to keep our podcast PG-13, so if you have younger listeners, you may want to review the content beforehand. I'm Katie. I'm Kenzie. I'm Emily B. And I'm Abby, and with that, let's talk about stuff. Ooh, that was okay. a flawless intro. Thank you, thank you. It's I've been done a while of, since we've had one of those. I've done a lot of talking today. I think it's the reason is because I'm the one who's been doing a lot of the intros lately, and I can never get through it without laughing at something. <laughs> You're doing okay. great. Oh, thanks, girl. Uh, so, yes, yes, to get us started, um, fan shout out, we have our first patron. Thank you. Now we have a few more dollars, and someday maybe we will be professional podcasters. We have four <laughs> more dollars. Woo! So we want to send a huge shout out to our close personal friends, Beluga Bath Co. Um, <laughs> it's almost like we should be sponsored, but we're not quite there yet. But that's okay. We're getting there. Someday it will happen. Once we faith. figure out how businesses work. Yeah, you know, once we decide to figure our lives out. But you guys are awesome. You guys are always supporting us. Um, we they truly to support are. support you. Um I know we gave you a shout out last time, but like you deserve all the shout outs. We love you. But they're our um, first patron. We amazing. heard a little rumor that you want to hear more episodes about whale conservation and shocker. Wow. I'm so excited. Emily is um, happy I, to provide. I would happily provide you with a million episodes of whale content. I and because you're our first patrons, I think we're going to have to. Yeah. Actually, oh, no. Don't they get to like oh, choose an episode? Oh, darn. I get to talk about whales. Also, oh, though, man. good topic choice. Yes. True. We love True. it. Um, so yeah, that's our fan shout out. What do we have for conservation updates? Um, this is super cool. I don't know who put this in here. I did. Uh, I'm so excited about it. Yeah, this is crazy. So the IUCN, which, um, is the organization that kind of designates like a species is endangered or threatened. It gives them one of those categories. Um, they're launching a new status called green. Um, and this status will talk about the functionality of species within their ranges and how much a species have, has recovered due to conservation efforts. So, for example, um, California condors are listed as critically endangered on the red list, um, but they would be considered largely depleted on the green status. So, like, if they come back to their native range, they would be, like, good on the green status, right? Yeah. Yes. So, God. from the article that I read... Um, and trying to understand it, it's it's like there's the IUCN red list status, which is like the conservation status, and that's like one bar, right? That has like extinct in the mm-hmm. wild, least concerned, blah blah blah. And then there's another one that's the green status. So there's the red status and the green status. Ah, yes. So the red status is how endangered are they overall population wise, and green status is how much if they were extinct in the wild or if they're endangered or whatever. Have they bounced back, basically? Mm, and so are they? And it's, it's more regional as well. It sounds like, and I could be wrong because this was announced like literally a week ago, right? Um, but it kind of sounds like it's more like in certain parts of California, they're going to be have mm-hmm. a higher population, even though California condors are completely endangered because they used to be all up and down the West Coast. But maybe yeah. in like the San Diego area, they're doing really, really well, so they'd be considered like pretty good in that zone. So green isn't actually like what they're called like there's going to be categories it's just the green list Let instead of the red list pause please <laughs> please wait while we figure out because that's kind of what it sounds about. like at least okay there because it's in the process right so it's like not it's, it's a new thing still um they're do, they're do, still do. figuring it out they just published the paper about <laughs> it uh, and the only reason i used california condo for example was one we just talked about it and two oh hell yeah uh, two, yeah. that's also the example they use, so it made me feel <laughs> Okay, Those California condors, man. Yeah, they're cool. Okay, so the red list is not evaluated, data deficient, least concerned, near threatened, vulnerable, endangered, critically endangered, extinct in the wild, and extinct, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So your green status is like a separate category, and they have not evaluated, intermediate, fully recovered, slightly depleted, moderately depleted, largely depleted, critically depleted, extinct in the wild, and extinct. So you get Interesting. two. Interesting. 
Interesting. That makes sense. So just like more specificity. Yeah. There's a quote on here um, from a guy or a girl named Hermes. I can't find their real name. So this person named Hermes um, that says the green status really fills the gap um, because it tells that despite fairly high extinction risk that we still have hope. Mm. So basically it's like there are conservation programs in place that are actively redo like re-upping the population or whatever you want so introducing that's the word there you go <laughs> basically it's like this this species california condors example is critically endangered however there are they are slowly steadily increasing because of conservation efforts rather than this animal is critically endangered and will likely be extinct by you know next week right <laughs> that's cool how's the vaquita doing oh that's not extinct period we were talking about that the other day there's 10 left oh allegedly when was the last time anyone saw one i don't know i don't want to talk about it because that's that's gonna have to hold up so when they like declare it being extinct yeah yeah all right. Well, anyways, that's so uh, sad. <laughs> I'm sorry. On to zoo news. Um, this I just popped this in there before Abby takes over. No, um, I like it. Okay, because it's literally <laughs> the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Please, if you have not seen this video, do yourself a favor. Pause this podcast right now and Google orangutan putting on sunglasses at zoo. So pretty much, um, there was a zoo. This was in. Uh, not in the United States. I forget what zoo it was. It was but in France. Yeah, I'm not sure, 100%. But a different zoo um, outside the country. And they have an orangutan exhibit. And there was a mother and her baby in the exhibit. And someone accidentally dropped their sunglasses into the exhibit. Classic guests at a zoo, am I right? Well, um, yeah. But this orangutan goes over the mom and she picks it up and she puts them on like almost correctly like right away so I just thought it was like the coolest video because obviously this orangutan has seen so many people wearing sunglasses and was like what's the deal with these why is everyone wearing them and puts them on and she like sits with them on for a little while and her baby like reaches up like mom what are those can I play with them and she's like no she like moves his arm back down she's like these are my sunglasses get out of here um, then at the end of the video, uh, the keepers uh, must have trained a behavior for, like, if they did get their hands on something dangerous that maybe falls into, like, the exhibit on accident, um, where basically the orangutan throws it to the keepers and the keepers throw back something <laughs> as a reward. <laughs> yeah, and this orangutan, so they must have given the command, like, you know, the command. Is it usually trade? Yes, that's, I mean, that's what, like, when I worked with capuchins, it was give. Um, so we had like a hand gesture and they would hand us whatever they were holding and then we'd give them treats in return. It's kind of like a trade. Um, but basically this orangutan just yeets the sunglasses. <laughs> it's like, all right, bye. They weren't, they weren't that interesting anyway. And then um, they get thrown like a bunch of leaves in return, <laughs> something to munch on. So it's just the greatest thing I've ever seen. And... If you guys want to hear a really good story about orangutans and the trade behavior, Go listen to the Keeper Chat Orangutan podcast because one of um, the hosts used to be an orangutan zookeeper and there's a really <laughs> good story about the trade on there. Yeah. And one time I, smart I, traded, I traded my capuchins. They took someone's keys. Um, so I traded them toy keys for Aww. the real keys. Kind of like a night at the museum situation. <laughs> but it worked and that's all that matters. <laughs> Oh, geez. All right. More zoo news. This one made me laugh, but also like made the feminist in me very happy. Uh, there's an ele- or apparently there's a nine year old macaque named Yake um, in has taken over a troop of 677 Japanese macaque monkeys at a Japanese nature reserve. And it's the first female monkey to leave a troop in the reserve's 70-year history. Dang. Woo! Go, girl. Isn't that nine, so cool? Nine years it. old, too. Dang. And she's, yeah, she's young. Also, yeah. go girl. she's the top of 677 I monkeys. I mean, that's a lot of other monkeys to, be, monkeys. to have under you. That's she has a lot. Right there. She that's has a lot of power. Point. I was just going to say, she could 
She could take over Japan if she wanted to. I'm just saying. If there's a monkey named Yake that you meet, be careful because she'll take you over. That's fine. Okay with that. There are worse options. I, for one, welcome our new monkey overlord. (laughs) (laughs) Can't be any worse than what we have now. (laughs) All right. Let's uh, another fun kind of thing. Yahoo released an article um, of the top 20 zoos in the United States. If you want to go read the top 20, see if your zoo made it, go check it out. This is fascinating to me. Like, what was the ranking? What was it based on? Okay, I have information about that. Because I also was like, did someone just, were like, these are my five favorite ones? Like, <laughs> yeah, these are zoos I've been to, and I thought they were pretty cool. <laughs> Obviously, this is a very objective article. Um, but they say they chose their zoo order for, like, where they ranked zoos. By a couple of factors, including the number of animals that were there, the number of total visitors. So do people like going to that zoo? Um, visitor feedback. So apparently they have some sort of data about how much people liked the zoo. Mm-hmm. And then the diversity of species there, which I thought was a really good thing to, to look at. Because that's also like when I go to a zoo, I want to see like all the things Yeah, from everywhere. A different um, thing. I do have the top five for you. Tell and us. I'm not surprised about really any of them. <laughs> Uh, number five was Zoo Miami. Mm. Number four, San Diego Zoo. Number three, the Bronx Zoo. Number two, one of my favorites, Omaha's Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium. Oh, that's a great zoo. It's, oh, again, different episode, but I will go off about their exhibits because they're so good. Um, and number one was Disney's Animal Kingdom right here in Florida. Whoop, whoop. Nice. And I'm mm. guessing roller coasters probably had a factor in that. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> they did mention the Pandora Land, and I was like, "Well, what? <laughs> there's no there's, animals there. There's, there's no animals there. because you can ride a crazy ride here." Yeah, and I'm kind of thinking that was probably animals. they did a lot of visitor feedback and total visitors. You know, Disney's huge, so well, yeah, that's true. You know, but they do have cool stuff. They have the safari and whatnot. So, good deal. All right, um, Emily Beluga yay. News sponsored, right. not really by Beluga Bathco. Oh, goodness. One of these days. Um, Okay, so a little bit of sad beluga news. Um, We had been following um, the Georgia Aquarium's uh, beluga that was pregnant for a long time. Um, Everybody was really excited, but unfortunately, the calf was lost during birth, um, which is really sad. And our hearts go out to their keepers and their whole team because I think the world just kind of collectively sighed after that. Um, We were all very excited and, you know. These things happen, but our hearts go out to them. And hopefully it sounds like the mom's still doing pretty well. So that's good news. Um, and then kind of on the complete flip side of that, um, <laughs> not one day later, literally the very next day, uh, SeaWorld San Antonio, they had their baby and baby is doing well. So yay, very good. And is very cute. Yes. So cute. Oh my God. Um, and then uh, some they interesting like little yeah, gray sausage rolls. Sorry, when oh, they're born, I just I really love baby blurgas. If you listeners, I know I have talked about this at length um, with other <laughs> whales and dolphins, etc. But if you have not seen a video of a newborn, any whale or dolphin, please do yourself a favor. They have these things called fetal folds, which are they basically are folded up inside mom until they're born. So they have these like deep wrinkles in their body. Um, and then their flukes, their tail, and their um, little pectoral flippers are so, like, floppy because they've been curled up inside mom. And so and they are pretty floppy for a while, and it is literally the cutest thing. I've they don't like quite little... know how to use their bodies. Yeah, That's they're true. little awkward accordions. So cute. Um, and then an interesting study um, that I found this morning, it was literally published yesterday, um, which is awesome. Today is August 5th. So the study was published August 4th of 2021. Um, there is a group that is us- using satellite data, satellite imagery to provide aerial images where they can identify both beluga whales and narwhals in Canada. Um, and these images can help them understand the distribution of these animals and the movement of these animals um, in times where it might be hard for them to physically get out there and either take photographs or what have you. Um, as you may have imagined, the Arctic is a very hazardous environment. Uh, so getting data can be very difficult, which is why these animals are not as studied, as well studied as some other um, marine animals. So really cool that they can do this now um, as technology gets better and better. Um, there are some images from the study that they posted in the article I read 
And you can, I mean, you can see each individual beluga. So that's really awesome information. That's so cool. Um, if you're interested, the paper is called Mapping Arctic Cetaceans from Space, a Case Study for Beluga and Narwhal. Um, or they could just get less wimpy. I mean, yes, wow. but also, have you been have to you the been Arctic to the lately? Arctic? <laughs> uh, I lived in the fifth oh my God. in North America. Oh my God. <laughs> Does that count? So I'm going to take that as a no. <laughs> it's close. All right. Speaking of where you live, Abby, give us the hot take today. I didn't even mention Minnesota in my notes. You should be proud of me. Yeah, it's too late. Oh, whatever. Uh, this week, we are uh, doing more of our biome series, if you haven't found out from the title yet. And we're talking about grasslands, which we were all very excited about. And Underrated. I'm, Underrated I'm most excited bio. for Kenzie to go off later. Yeah, there, there, are, there are feelings. As you may have <laughs> yeah. guessed, grasslands contain grass. You took my joke. Aww. Oh, no. <laughs> well, that's okay. Well, you know, Abby, what exactly is a grassland? Well, did you know that a grassland is, oh my gosh. drum roll please, a large open area of grass? What? Wow. Are you sure? That's... Yes, I, don't I looked know. at several sources, um, peer reviewed, and everyone <laughs> kind of agrees. A grassland is an open area of grass. Wow. Tell me more. Uh, so besides just that, there are other factors uh, that grasslands are characterized by. Uh, similar to the other biomes that we talked about, um, there are different things that make a grassland a grassland. So first, there is low rainfall, not like scarce, but low. Um, usually between 25 to 100 centimeters or 10 to 4 inches annually. Um, for comparison... Uh, deserts get less than 10 inches of rain every year and rainforests get over 100 inches of rain every year in order to be considered one of those two biomes. So they're just smack dab in the middle there. Um, but the second thing that kind of makes a grassland, a cat grassland, is wildland fires. So we hear about Smokey the Bear a lot and forest fires a lot. However, these fires are a little bit different. Um, they are not wildfires that are caused by irresponsible people. These are fires that are caused usually by lightning strikes um, or other natural factors, or they are controlled burns from conservation organizations or government organizations. Um, and the grass, these uh, fires are actually really, really important for grasslands and they need them. Without them, they would not um, be able to continue as a grassland. Um, they're able to recover really easily from fires because grasses just are hardier than you think. quick. Huh? They're fast. They're fast growers. They're fast growers. Bamboo can grow one foot in a day for some species. So like, not that bamboo is a grass in a grassland, but like you know, <laughs> comparison. Grass grows very quickly. Uh, if you've ever lived somewhere to cut your lawn, you know that. Um, True. And then with these fires, the animals that live in grasslands are adapted to survive the fires that are there. Um, not like they're fireproof, but they either outrun the fires. Or they burrow under the ground where they're going to be unaffected. So, or fly Could away. Could you imagine if there was an animal that evolved to be fireproof? I think that'd be dope. I mean, I didn't write this in my notes, but one cool thing um, about fires in at least savannas, which we're going to talk about in a second, marabou storks will actually wait at this, like, the fire line where the fires are coming mm -hmm. and they'll wait there. And then when animals pass away Stop. from smoke and stuff, they'll, they'll get them. Like it's something that I've just been seen doing. Oh my God. They're like, like little snake. Insane. You thought that you were free. They're so cool. I love them. <laughs> they are crazy you. birds. They're insane. Run out of the they... fire and into my mouth. Literally. <laughs> so they're, they like stay in front of the flame and then um, secretary birds come by after the fire comes through and find all the remnants too. So like they kind of worked on either side of the fire. Oh, dang. Fun insane. facts with Abby. Um, <laughs> there are two types of grasslands um, or like there's two categories as many types um, the first is a savanna which is also known as a tropical grassland savannas are found in tropical areas which means they're between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn and if you don't know what that is go find a map um, they have wet and dry seasons uh, usually a much longer dry season than a wet season they generally have warmer climates um, and porous soil that drains quickly. So savannas tend to be a little bit drier than 
um, temperate grasslands, we'll talk about in a second. Uh, savannas are found in South America, Asia, Australia, and famously, Africa. Are you sure there's a savanna in Africa? <laughs> you know, I, I did Lion go King to Africa. To me. I was and- gonna say, have you been there? And then I was like, oh yeah, I'd be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if we go back to our definition of a grassland being a large open area of grass, um, from my personal experience, I would say there is um, a savanna out in Africa. <laughs> Thank you for your research. Oh, you know what? I'm just here to serve you. Don't worry. Uh, savannas also have longer grasses than other kinds of, than the temperate grassland. So their um, grasses can be like two, three meters tall in some places, which is insane. That is um, crazy. And kind of scary when you're on a bush hike. Not going to lie. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, Kenzie, you know, you like go around and you're like, oh, look, an elephant. Yeah, no, can personally confirm. <laughs> Terrifying, right? Yes. But that cool. Way too close to the man. Uh-huh. And you don't know that they're there, that you're like, oh, shit. There mm-hmm. They're surprisingly rather quiet for such big animals. I, it's those fat pads in their that. feet. Isn't that the whole shtick? You know what? <laughs> Moving on. So temperate grasslands, which if you're from North America, you're probably very familiar with. It's a big old part the of our country. Prairie. We'll get there. Um, temperate grasslands are actually the most endangered biome on earth, which we will talk about later. They have much richer soil than savannas. Uh, there are four major temperate grasslands in the world. The prairies of North America, the steppes of Eurasia, the Pampas of South America, and the Veld of specifically South Africa. I love that. Which they apparently is really outside of the Tropic of Capricorn, so it is considered a temperate grassland. <laughs> Just outside. <laughs> I think it is, actually, because I was looking at it, and I was like, why is that? But then, you know, again, a lot of cited sources said it, so I'm going to believe the smarter people. They also experience four seasons, and for most of these, much of the precipitation that they receive comes from snow. Yay! There you go. Uh, the grasses are always, also a lot shorter, um, not really exceeding over a meter tall, so pretty awesome. And speaking of grasses, going back to our definition of a grassland being a large open area of grass, Kenzie's going to tell you what kind of grass is. Oh, yeah, that's right, folks. My goal today is to get you all excited about the majestic world of grass. But not our lawn grass, because that grass is bad. <laughs> that grass No. <laughs> no, uh, we can talk about the lie that is the American lawn on a, another episode. But, again... <laughs> That is not today. On a quick little side note, there was a really cool TikTok I saw yesterday that was this company that actually <gasps> um, re-landscapes. Oh, oh. I saw it this morning! Yeah, they re-landscape, like, your lawn to make it basically, like, more eco-friendly and, like, basically get rid of your grass and plant, like, other things. Um, but it was so cool and I and wish I Florida. had a house and money. Yeah, yeah they were in Florida. In Florida? Yeah, uh, I, I, I was going to say, yeah. um, David found that TikTok this morning and he came to me and I had seen it already. And he was like, babe, babe. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> and he was like, we got to do this. And I was like, yeah, we can do that when we have a house. And he goes, he's like, oh, will you help me tend to the plants? <laughs> oh, he knows you have experience with that. And Listen, if you like, don't want to do it, y'all can hire me as your personal landscape. I will happily you hire go. you, Kenzie. Please? As is my... that more? Is that means we're gonna see Kenzie more. That sounds good to me. Ten out yeah. of ten. But basically, it was just like goodbye, normal lawns. Hello, actual eco-friendly, cool. And I'm pretty lots sure of plants that um, you can eat. So great I'm pretty stuff. sure he called the grass grass holes. <laughs> we did. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, 10 we're all on the same side of TikTok. I was anyway. gonna say either we're all on the same side of TikTok. We all have the same the TikTok. I love it. All right, Kenzie, talk about grass with joy. All right, listener, hold on, I gotta granola bar in my mouth. One moment. <laughs> I was like, it sounds like she's eating something. <laughs> I needed a snack. Are you eating grass? Uh- <laughs> Uh, luckily, no. Now, this is a little bit more flavorful. But if I was a bison, I would love some grass. Mm-hmm. What so kind? Hold on tight, listener, because we're about to find out. You're in for a wild ride. <laughs> so, 
Moving to North America to the Great Prairies, we are going to talk about big blue stem grass and purple coneflowers. Now native to the prairies of North America, big blue, as we sometimes like to call it, is a warm season grass, meaning, you guessed it, it grows during the warmer seasons. Crazy. Uh, Yeah, big blue isn't called big for nothing, though, as this grass can actually reach up to heights of six feet tall. Uh, This actually provides excellent cover for a variety of species and is also an important foraging substance for grazers of the prairies, aka the bison. I've got a joke for you guys. (laughs) Oh boy. What did the buffalo say when his buddy went off to college? Bye, son. Ah! (laughs) That's a trooper! My house! You think I don't know that joke? So other than good old Big Blue, there's another plant that I like to introduce you guys to that's not a grass. So this is called the purple cone flower, and you guys have probably seen it. It's very popular flower in a lot of landscape and gardening, and it's no surprise why. So it's a perennial flower native to the North American prairies, and it's characterized by its drooping lavender-colored petals and a very large central brown disc. So again, it's not very hard to spot. They are especially important for native bee species, which we love say, to see. Bees love this flower like more than anything in at the world. Start, at least <laughs> so, one. Yeah, on if them. you want to be pollinator friendly in your landscape or gardening, cone flowers are an excellent choice. And fun fact, it's believed this plant can be used for mild antibiotics. Nice. Oh, yeah. Love that. So not only are the grasslands important for the animals, but they're also important for our health as well. Who would have thought? Now, moving further east. <sighs> Here we go. Welcome, everybody, to the desolation that is the Eurasian steppe. <laughs> uh- <laughs> I... Listener, I'm going to be real honest with you. I had a really hard time looking up what grasses exactly grew in the Eurasian steppe, much less any different plants. Now, it is widely regarded that the Eurasian steppe, it's not as bountiful. Its soil is not as rich as, say, a lot of the Western uh, grasslands that you can find, or grasslands in the Western Hemisphere, I should say. But I'm going through the internet and all these articles, and I'm like, is this a grassland, or is this just, I don't know, a really big flat patch of dirt? (laughs) It makes no sense. A black (laughs) hole in history. If anyone is an expert on Eurasian steppe plants or grasses, please reach out to me, because I am really upset that there's not more talk about the Eurasian steppe grasslands plant community. Because you know what they all say? You know what they all say? A grassland that stretches from the across the Eurasian continent. I'm like, what grasses? <laughs> <laughs> what kinds? <laughs> Are there any fruit shrubs or flowering plants? Like that's a really big chunk of land. It can't just be one type of grass. It can't Kenzie. just be dirt. <laughs> Kenzie, we Sounds found like your you thesis. need to go investigate. <laughs> Guess if we're I was good at academia, I would book myself a research ticket to the Eurasian steppes. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> what the Eurasian steppe lacks in, in vegetation, it makes up for in history. In audacity. <laughs> so the Eurasian steppe is perhaps one of the most influential regions within human history, fun fact. The Silk Road was established in this very biome all the way back in 200 BC. And during the 13th century, the infamous Genghis Khan conquered these lands for his Mongol empire. Fun fact, the Mongols were also the first people to use bio-warfare, or at least the first recorded instance of it. Um, But where would this history be if not for the vegetation that grew there? I don't know. (laughs) Genghis Khan killed it all. He burned it all. No, actually, the Eastern Mongolian steppe uh, is largely still intact today due to the traditional land steward techniques still being practiced by the Mongolian people. Which Never is mind, really you cool. go, Mongolia. Yeah. We love so, to hear it. Again, just goes to show you involve the community, things happen. It's not so, that hard. Nope. Conservation. It's not just an animal issue, it's a human issue. It's, anyways, it's pretty much just a human issue, actually. Yeah, I mean, we, we as a species really do depend on it. <laughs> and we the ones who done messed it up. Everyone was doing fine until we showed up. 
they were like, dang, this champ chimpanzee that got out of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's uh, the All right, moving forward in the grass. <laughs> All right, so moving further south and west to a place that is actually covered in notable vegetation, and we're going down <laughs> to the pampas grasslands of South America. So the pampas grass is unsurprisingly the dominant species of the pampas region. It's characterized as incredibly hardy. The species is also identified by its very distinct feathery top, and it has an almost silver-like quality to its edge. The name pampas itself comes from the indigenous quecha, word for flat surface. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, I think so. Good. Okay, beautiful. Yep. But Kenzie, I'm not an expert, but yeah, no, you're good. <laughs> but Kenzie, I'm so tired of listening about grass. Well, you guys are in luck because here in the Pampas grasslands, they actually have more fertile soil than your old Eurasian steppe. So they're actually able to support trees like the ombu tree, spelled O-M-B-U. The ombu tree belongs to the pokeweed family, funny enough, and is characterized as a mid-sized evergreen tree. These trees are highly valued for their shade in the grasslands, and they can withstand severe bouts of drought. Nice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Excellent timing, you two. (laughs) Now, moving forward to perhaps one of my favorite biomes in the world, we're going over to the savannas. Now, here in the savanna, red grass is a type of grass that you can find. It's also known as ruigras in Afrikaans, and you can find this plant throughout the grasslands of South and Eastern Africa. A favorite of primary consumers such as warthogs, this grass helps life to flourish, 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 flourish. Flores, that's me. Oh, wait, gotta cut that too. Oops. Yeah, hold on. Um, Oh my gosh. (laughs) A favorite of primary consumers such as warthogs, this grass helps life to flourish in the veld. Hardy and fire resistant, this grass is also a good indicator of the ecosystem's overall health. It's also a favorite of farmers, too, as it's supposed to be very nutritious for livestock. So not only do the wildlife depend on it, but also the people who make their living on the land as well. That's why they're so big. Exactly. I love how you said that. It's like a favorite of the warthogs. The warthogs are like, yes, 10 out of 10. (laughs) Would recommend. Five-star Yelp. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Kenzie looked at the reviews before she said this. this. Mm -hmm. Cited peer review source. Yeah, and during the dry times, or I guess their version of winter, the grass will turn this really pretty bright, ruddy red color as well, which, of course, is why it's called red grass. Amazing. Now, perhaps my favorite, 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 favorite plant of the grasslands, or that you can find in the grasslands, it is not a grass it is another kind of tree. It is the baobab tree. The best tree. The best tree in all the world. 10 out of 10 will fight someone over this tree. <laughs> so, there, so there are several different species of trees, of the baobab trees, and you can find them in different places of the world. But the oldest and grandest tree or baobab tree species you can find in the African grasslands. So the baobab tree has been known to reach up to over 3,000 years of age. They're characterized by their upside-down appearance. They are usually leafless for nine months out of the year, and they are often referred to as the tree of life. That's because they store a lot of water in their trunk. And so when you go out and you see a baobab in the wild, you'll notice that there will be a lot of scratch marks, holes in it. And that's because during the dry months, animals will actually come up and chew on the bark to get to the moisture. Uh, And the elephants will actually poke it with its tusks as well to get that moisture, too. Now, there's also a lot of myth and folklore surrounding the baobab, too. Uh, One of my favorite stories about it, I actually read when I was in Botswana and got to see several baobabs. There's a picture of me hugging one, but... I have a picture of me hugging one. Oh, nice! I love that. We found our pictures for the Instagram. We did. (laughs) We did. But anyways, one of the folklore about the baobab tree and how it came to be was that long ago when God was creating the earth, he was giving each animal a tree or a task to do. And hyena was last in line. And because hyena was last in line, he was very feeling very spiteful and very bitter. So when the creator gave him the tree, he planted the tree upside down in spite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Those classic hyenas. Emily, I would love that if she was here. (laughs) I also love the baobab tree, too, side note, because it is pollinated by the Egyptian fruit bat. There it is. Everyone everyone knows I love bats. (laughs) Okay. Weren't we all waiting for that, though? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, question, Kenzie, for you. Yes. Do you know what the biggest bat in Florida is off the top of your head? I think it's the bonneted bat. Okay. Uh, roughly how big is that? Um, about the size of your hand, maybe. Okay. I saw a really big animal that looks like it could have been a bat mm-hmm. fly in front of me the other day, but it also could have been a bird, but I thought mm-hmm. it was a bat because it was flying kind of weird. Anyway, sorry. I just uh- <laughs> knew that you would know. <laughs> I knew that you would know. Yeah. Or it could just be a, a really big, big brown Nope, bat you're too. right. I just Googled it. The Florida bonneted bat oh, is the largest bat in Florida. Look at that. Wow. Thanks. It's like I actually helped volunteer researching bats during my undergrad. I just don't question your knowledge about bats. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would. you could have told me any bat and I would have been like, sounds good. Yeah, you <laughs> could have been like a flying fox and I would have been like, they're probably invasive here. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> No, believe me, um, my bat knowledge does not even scratch the surface compared to other people that I've met in the field who have literally spent their entire lives pretty much dedicated to this, you know, study of these amazing creatures. Yeah, but you're the only one I know, Kenzie, so I'm just going with you. Oh, they only live in, like, South Florida. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, Mm. so I did not see a bat. It must have been a bird. Anyway, sorry, we can continue (laughs) this podcast now. Well, speaking of those birds animals out on the grasslands yeah. and also the ones flying in front of Emily. Yeah. Um, there are obviously a lot of them that live in these uh, grasslands. Uh, there are over 500 animals that call grasslands home, but we're just going to do a quick little here are the top you know, ones that are kind of the most notable or known, we or maybe not so that. known. Yeah, just really cool ones. So We're going to start in the uh, tropical grasslands dash savannas um, in Africa. So we kind of mentioned them already, but obviously elephants um, are found in the savanna in Africa. Um, They're the largest land animal out there and they play a super important role in the ecosystem. Um, They uproot and trample small trees and eat around 300 pounds of grass a day. Um, and because they eat 300 pounds of grass a day, they poop a lot of it back Yay! out. Um, they poop about 150 pounds a day, which is so insane to me. Do you want I to hear my favorite fun fact? I could be an elephant keeper. <laughs> Go ahead. This is my favorite fun fact. Did you know that elephants poop at a rate of six inches per second? Oh my good God. What the heck? <laughs> Have I, I wonder you guys, figured it I out. read a study that like basically said all mammals poop at like an equivalent rate. Yes, you have <gasps> told me that before. I think weird. we mentioned that in an episode. Isn't that weird? Like it takes yeah. the same amount of time for an elephant to poop as it does for a mouse. <laughs> well, the important thing about elephant poop is their poop helps distribute seeds and fertilize the ground. Um, a lot of zoos that grow their own brows or their own... Um, which is basically plants for animals to forage on. Um, so a large use, open area full of grass. They will use their elephant dung to help fertilize that um, browse area for their other animals. So thanks, elephants. You can also make paper out of it. Hello, poo-poo paper. It's the best thing ever because all they need is grass. Your notes. That's so cute. <laughs> I didn't tell anybody it was hilarious. So Abby sent poop um, as a thank you to all of her guests for her wedding. I sure did. And if you're listening, you're welcome. <laughs> um, some other notable animals that live in the savanna grasslands would include animals like antelope and white rhinos, um, who also graze and keep the grass short. Um, and giraffes, of course, which eat the leaves on the sparse trees up to a certain point, which keeps the trunks mostly branch free. Um, there's a space between, which allows there to be a space kind of between the grass and the leaf canopy, which is neat. And then you get all those picturesque trees that I think everyone always pictures when they think of the savanna. Acacias. There you go. That's the kind of tree. I don't know things about plants. Also used in furniture. Do you want to know why I know what acacia is? Yes. I used to play Zoo Tycoon and that was the type of tree that made the lions happy. Zoo Tycoon saves lives. 
Zitakun turned Emily into a little animal lover. Not that she wasn't already, but... Well, traveling down under to their savannas, um, they obviously have a lot of animals there as well, but notably, like, that's where a lot of the name brand... (laughs) Name brand? That makes no sense. (laughs) I was going to say name brand Australian This is the Australian kangaroo (laughs) and the Australian wallaby and the Australian echidna. Exactly. So kangaroos and echidnas are probably the most um, Australian animals out of all the ones that live there. But um, kangaroos are super important in the bush. That's what Australia, um, that's what their grasslands are known as, the bush, which is kind of the area that separates the outback or the desert area from um, getting more back into like um, forest area is the bush, which is their grasslands. I've been there. It's great. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Was it a big um, open area? It sure was a big open area full of grass. Yep. Absolutely. Just checking since we're like doing our research here. Mm-hmm. So you had some kangaroos, echidnas, lots of bats, rodents, frogs, birds, um, lizards, like frilled neck lizards, which are really cool lizards, venomous snakes, and a lot of invertebrates, lots of bugs. So they they always just have a lot of animals down there. Um, grasslands are no exception. And then we go to South America, um, which biologically has the richest savanna in the world. I did not know that. That's that's pretty crazy. Um, a lot of the animals that live in this area are similar to animals that are in the Amazon rainforest, um, just in much fewer quantity. Um, so um, grassland area is just below the Amazon rainforest. So just kind of like I was talking about with Australia, oftentimes it's going from forest to grasslands. And then maybe to another sort of um, biome. Um, But one notable animal in this area, and I absolutely agree this is worth noting, (laughs) is the Brazilian tapir. Um, Tapir? I've heard it said many ways. I call it tapir. Yeah, tapir, tapir, have your pick. Basically just... It's the best. Such such a weirdo of the animal kingdom. I love them so much. Um, they're large herbivorous mammals. Um, they, they're they like similar in shape to a pig, but they have a short prehensile nose trunk um, that helps them forage for those grasses. And they're just, they're just neat. And their they're babies really... look like watermelons. Yes! Their babies have really cute, like, patterning <laughs> on aggressive. them. I'm sorry, they just, that's so true. Like, baby tapirs are, like, my favorite thing on this planet. They, they it's really my favorite do look animal like small baby. watermelons. And then they grow up to be um, a really awkward combination between an anteater and a pig. Have you seen the fuzzy ones? Yes. They don't they're make great. sense. They're amazing. Go do yourself a favor and look up a baby tapir. Um But moving on from South America, um, in Southeast Asia, uh, not as highly studied as some of these other animal (laughs) art. Basically, they got lots of cattle. So that's another place we got to go visit is Southeast Asia. Everyone's Um, got a water buffalo. To their grasslands. Oh, of course. I will say. Everybody's got a water buffalo. We are moving on to our temperate grasslands. <laughs> don't want to talk about no, it. I was no, I was gonna say because I always hear like the whole bison versus buffalo thing. Um, I feel like this is a good place to bring that up. So yeah, the joke times, doesn't really work, does it? Yeah, not really. Um, so though, like a lot of people use buffalo and bison in interchangeably, um, buffalo and bison are distinct animals. They are separate animals um the old world or true buffaloes which are the cape buffalo and the water buffalo are native to africa and asia whereas bison are found in north america and europe so the two are actually not closely related even though they're in the same family um, which is bovidae so fun fact i would (laughs) we had american bison at the zoo i used to work at and people would always be like look at the buffalo and i'd be like they're bison and no one it would really is get infuriating. It. it is, but like at the same time, you're like, Katie, you didn't also know that there was a difference between bison and buffalo before you worked here. So why also, are you getting so heated over it? And I'm like, I don't know. I just am. Also, I'm pretty sure the reason that we call them, and if anyone knows differently, correct my wrong. The reason we call them buffalo 
is because when Europeans were colonizing North America, they saw them, they're like, wow, those kind of look like the Cape Buffalo and kind of look like the water Buffalo. They have the same horns. So they must be the same animal. And so they just called them Buffalo until later scientists were like, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think they were called buffalo first, but then to make it easier to figure out what exactly they were, they changed it. Yeah. Well, while buffalo um, in Africa and Asia are really common in grassland areas, in North America, we have our bison, American bison, um, which are definitely, I think, an American icon. Uh, they sort of like the bald eagle. I feel like they're just the image of the prairie and the West um, or the Midwest of the country. They're literally um, on a national parks logo. There you go. That's, that's a big logo that they're on. I was trying to think of something specific and nothing was coming to mind. I got you. Um, thank you. But they were once almost hunted to extinction. Uh, so kind of like the bald eagle, uh, we have a really great way of just almost killing off all of our really cool native animals, <laughs> but it's okay. Cause they're not. <laughs> Uh, but they are one of the most important animals in the grassland ecosystem. Um, bison live in huge herds and they graze across the grasslands, filling the same role as antelope on the savannas. Um, their hooves kind of also help make that ground really fertile um, and they'll turn it over um, and, you know, as they graze. So that's also really important for just really fertile soil um, so that plants can grow like all the wonderful plants that Ken Kenzie mentioned. Uh, I think the other big one in North America or the prairie in North America is definitely prairie dogs. We love them. They're not meerkats. No, they're also, not. So don't call them that and don't call meerkats prairie dogs. Get your small mammals right. Uh, on um, this podcast, that's called a smammal. A smammal. <laughs> Get your smammals right. So like bison, they are also grazers, but their burrows also help aerate the soil and provide homes for other species to shelter in during the fires. So thanks, prairie dogs. Um, the other grasslands that we mentioned are the Eurasian steppes. Um, we got lots of antelope out there. Specifically, I'm really afraid I don't know how to say this. Saiga? Saiga. Saiga antelope. Uh, Google them, Katie. The best noses. Okay. All right. Hang you on. gotta. It's the like a tapir, best... but better. Yeah, it's that's <laughs> not better than a taper. How dare you? Whoa. Uh, wait. <laughs> wait. Oh, that is I have seen this animal before. No, this might be better than a tapir. In terms oh, of, come on. In terms of goofiness. Like yes, this, they're is a, goofier. this is a goofy looking animal. So if you don't know how to spell it, it's S-A-I-G-A antelope. Please do yourself a favor. Have a good laugh and look at this this beautiful creature. And then cry because we're killing them all. <laughs> the other one that we're also not doing a great job with out on the Eurasian step <laughs> is uh, the Shivaski wild horse. Yes. Um, they were once extinct in the wild, but they have since been reintroduced to Mongolian grasslands. Um, so they are a really cool wild horse. Um, and that's due to zoos. Yes, mostly. thanks zoos. Um, we should definitely talk about them more in another episode. I feel like we talked about them in something, but I, I thought we did what. too. Maybe in remember. the zoo stuff? Yeah, maybe. Um, journeying back to South America uh, to their temperate grasslands. Um, they have guanacos, of which apparently have beautiful eyelashes. As some they do. They really do. They're very pretty. Guanacos. So, yeah, they look very similar to um, llamas. They're closely related to them. They're, they're cute little guys. They're big. They're not really that little. Um, and then you also have papa deer um, as well. So, again, lots of grazers. Lots of grass grazers. Pompa grass and pompa deer. Pompa grass and pompa deer. There you go. And then the last mention here for our South Africa veldt uh, is many animals, which are the same ones in the savannah. <laughs> it's just not in a tropical region, so no real mention there. Um, but we're going to swing it on over to what issues are actually facing these grasslands and how we can help them. Because Abby mentioned earlier, they it is the most... Um, like endangered biome which i didn't know that's kind of crazy to me I, I would have guessed rainforests on that one but or like coral reefs but here we are 
All right, let's talk about the issues, and there are a heck of a lot of them. Um, so the biggest one for grasslands and the reasons that they are the most endangered biome on Earth is, by and large, habitat loss. Um, grasslands are lost at an alarming rate for development. Um, they are an easier, air quotes, I hope you can see them through my voice, um, easier land to develop versus like, I don't know, a cliff. Um, and so, <laughs> well, it's it a lot the easier hardest to, one. It's easier to transform grassland into agricultural agricultural use, or you know, than it is to clear a rainforest. Well, because you're like growing the same stuff, right? Um, so, grasslands are lost at an alarming rate for development um, into agricultural land um, for unsustainable practices, which we'll talk a little bit about. But that includes things like overgrazing and crop clearing. Um, overgrazing um, of livestock will compact the soil, um, which actually promotes weed growth and inhibits native plant growth, native grass growth. Um, when land is used for agricultural practices, pests basically take over because the land is all being used for the same type of plant. So the same type of pest basically says, wow, this is amazing. You gave me so much corn, time to go wild. Um, and the pests just go crazy. And the natural predators of said pests can't keep up because they're not used to having so many insert pest here. Um, the land is also developed into urban areas. So the clearing of the land of native plants removes the nutrients from the soil. That's really hard to recover. Restoring grasslands is very difficult um, because it does go into the soil, um, which is very hard to recover. Um, another kind of issue with grasslands is exotic plant invasion. I actually have personal experience with this. Um, in undergrad, we did a lot of studies, um, just like very basic ecology studies, like this is how you use a transect. This is how you use a quadrat. Um, and in the area that we were studying, uh, basically it had historically been a lot of native Hawaiian plants and had been taken over by guinea grass. Um, guinea grass is an invasive grass in Hawaii. It takes over everything. It grows really fast, really tall. Um, and it just goes crazy. So there are exotic grasses. There are native grasses. The exotic ones, not so great. Um, and they compete with the native plants for space, water, and resources. Um, another threat to grasslands is the changes in fire frequency. So as mentioned earlier, fire is really important to grasslands for um, keeping the plants small enough that they don't turn into woodlands um, and sustaining those populations. And without the fire or with a change in fire frequency, either too much or too little, um, again, it just doesn't give the plants and animals time to recover. Um, this is mostly due to climate change, um, shocker. Uh, climate change affects the rain levels and with less rain you get things like droughts and you end up with a desert. Um, with too much rain you get things like flash flooding. Um, also on the not enough rain spectrum you get things like the dust bowl. <laughs> Big historical Did somebody say the Great Depression? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Kinsey materializes out of a cloud of dust. <laughs> the time traveler in me is ready. <laughs> He's and then, been well, there, friends. Well, like even last year when they had like the hurricane mm -hmm. that went through. Yep. Yeah. What so, was it called? It's not called a hurricane, but it's the same uh, thing. Derecho. Yeah. Yep. It's straight line winds. Um, basically, these grasslands, as they can't keep up with the changes, just like most natural systems on Earth can't keep up with how fast the climate is changing. Um, so those are the primary threats to the biome. And these threats mainly focus on the plants. Obviously, it's a grassland. It's got a lot of grass. Um, but we just talked about all of the wildlife that calls the grasslands their home. Um, so a lot of these iconic animals, i.e. your savannah animals like lions, giraffes, zebras, um, prairie animals like bison, um, all these other animals that live there, they call the grasslands their home and changes into the biome will eventually have big effects on these wildlife. Um, it's almost like the food chain is a thing. So, <laughs> you know, if your primary producers, the grass, are not thriving, all of those other animals and organisms that live in that biome are going to be having or thriving too much exactly i.e invasives um and we talked about this already as well grasslands are a very important habitat for our pollinator friends so if the grasslands aren't doing well our pollinators aren't doing well and you know i don't know about you but and i like I food get so really upset yes yeah um, so there are some things that we can do to help with the conservation of grasslands um, there are a lot of really good organizations out there that are working um, with agriculture, like farmers and with people who like, you know, either they live on these lands or live around them. Again, social issue friends. Um, 
to help conserve grasslands. So one of the biggest ones is to avoid monoculture farming. Um, pretty familiar with this as I grew up in the great old Midwest. Um, things like you can't just plant corn on the same plot of land year after year after year after year because you're going to deplete the same nutrients from the soil. Um, whereas if you rotate your crops, um, in one year you grow corn, in one year you grow, grow soybeans, in one year you grow whatever, um, you're going to be giving that soil a chance to breathe and helping to restore some of those nutrients. Um, there's also a lot of legislation that goes into this. So you want to support bills that incentivize farmers to utilize more sustainable agricultural practices. That was a lot of big words in a really small sentence. Whew. It was a good um, sentence. Thank you. I, I'm doing my best. Vote um, so we don't kill the prairies. There you yes, go. Exactly. Um, livestock grazing actually, um, does support grasslands maximizing the amount of carbon stored. So this means if you have proper grazing techniques, the livestock is eating the grass down. And then when your livestock moves on, the grass has a chance to recover um, and absorb all of that carbon out of the air. So grasslands are amazing carbon sinks. They store it in their roots, their stems, their whole, the whole plant um, and into the soil. So we want to support good grazing practices. Um, and these are things like rotating where they're grazing. And then there's this really cool one that I read about called mob grazing. Yes. Where you basically let your whole flock or whole herd or whole insert large group of livestock animal here eat in one area for like one day. So they like totally decimate it and then you don't let them go there again. That's also like, on TikTok. I saw they are like, here's my goats at the beginning of the day with all of these invasive plants. And I went back for like 24 hours later. There was nothing. Got it. It was incredible. Goats. So there are things that you can do to kind of um, allow the grass to have time to restore um, and not just like totally decimate it and cause things like we talked about earlier where the weeds want to grow and not the grass. Um, you don't want the to dust compact bowl. it down. Exactly. <laughs> the dust bowl. Try, try not to do that again, friends. Um, <laughs> I remember the, the dust bowl. <laughs> uh, another one here is protecting remaining grasslands, um, basically preserving what we do have because, like I mentioned before, they're very hard to restore once destroyed and then controlled fires very important um or even allowing natural fires to do what they're supposed to do right um fires are a part of the cycle of grasslands without them all of a sudden you have a woodland which is a totally different biome um or with too many you've got basically the eurasian step apparently with nothing but dirt <laughs> And the dust bowl, it's just me kneeling in the middle of the Eurasian steppe, dust falling from my hands as I shout to the sky, where is the grass? Uh, with that, my friends, we are coming to the close of this episode. Um, so we hope that we gave you some very fun uh, ideas on how to help grasslands in your area or all around the world. And with that, I think Abby's going to wrap it up for us. Yeah, we have no announcements, except that, again, thank you, Beluga Bath Co., for being our very first patron. We can't wait to do more episodes about animal conservation, especially whales. Okay, I want you to know, and I'll probably cut this out, but I just need you all to know that in my head, I knew you were going to say Beluga Bath Co. <laughs> what I thought in my head was Beluga I can't even say it. It's so stupid. I thought you were going to say Beluga Bath News. So today on Beluga Bath News. I'm so sorry. Like, I just thought of it and it had to come out. I'm we so can sorry. send them just this clip and be like, we love you so much for renaming a segment. The trend segment is me having a total breakdown over <laughs> bad news. <laughs> anyway. <sighs> sorry, I had to tell you all. So thanks, Beluga Bath Co. We're so excited to have you be our patron. And we also love you guys a ton. I'm really excited about your new shower bombs, most of all. Um. We do have social media. If you would like to connect with us farther, you can follow us on Instagram um, and Facebook. And every handle is Conservation Queens Podcast. You can also email us at conservationqueenspodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or suggestions or need career advice. Or I guess we'll look at your resume. I don't know how good we're going to do, but like we can check it out. 
uh, I don't know. Uh, also, join us on Patreon for just $5 a month. You can become a Beluga babe with Beluga Bathco um, and support us. We're hoping that we're able to get new microphones for all so that we all sound beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Support um, but- your local podcast. Podcast. Pods, pods, kids. When we get new microphones, we won't have as many mistakes. That's not true. Or you'll just you'll be able to hear them better. We'll sound, yeah, the mistakes will sound even crisper. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so we'll hope that you support us on there. We also are hoping that we might unlock more content the more patrons we get. Yeah. So if you join on Patreon, Sneak maybe preview, one day you'll we'll find all out. be about whales. <laughs> It's all whale content. Okay. Emily's going to start her own spinoff podcast that's just called Whales. Just called It'll be called, it'll, it'll be called Whale Hello There. Oh, I love it. I'm going to monetize that, Katie. I'm going to trademark it before you get the chance. Please don't sue us, John Mulaney. Oh, yeah. Oop. Well, no, it's just, oh, hello. It's not. Oh, you're right. Yeah, we could do it. I don't know. Anyway, everyone, thank you so much for joining us this <laughs> thank week. You guys. Hopefully you laughed along with us. You learned some new stuff. And we want you to all go out there and say sustainable. Goodbye. Bye. Where's the grass? Where's the grass?